Ephesians chapter 3. Topic of our discussion is prayer and family life, and uh, with its broader application to the life that we have as a church family. I think as I begin this morning, we can safely assume that none of us would debate the importance of prayer in our walk with Christ. Jesus' example of prayer is powerful. He assumed that you and I would find regular times for prayer and quiet places that we would relate to him in a prayerful way. And so he would say, when you pray. So he, he, he lived and ministered with an assumption that you and I would spend time talking with our Heavenly Father, assuming that it would have a vital place in our lives. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17 said this, pray without ceasing. So you find this elevation of this clear priority of prayer. Samuel would say in the Old Testament, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. So over and over as you work your way through the Word of God, you find this assumption that prayer is a vital part of our Christian experience. However, the truth for many of us is that we experience seasons of weakness or a lack of fervency in our prayer life. We live in a very busy culture. Uh, it's hard to find a quiet place where you will not be interrupted by someone or something. Particularly that thing being a phone or a computer or an iPad or uh, many things that just constantly call for our attention. The TV, the radio. You, every time you get in the car, you have options. You have ways that you can spend your time. And often, prayer ceases to be a priority in our lives. Because we live in an age of distraction and we have high demands on our time. And I want to encourage you this morning to this thought. We need to discipline ourselves to pray. We need to take time to seek God. Prayer is vital to our Christian life. It is to our Christian life what water is to a fish and what oxygen is to a human being. Breathing is essential for living. And prayer is essential for vital Christian living. Prayer is vital to our life in Christ. It is the oxygen of our spiritual life. And it is also oxygen for a Christian family. It is what will breathe life and vitality into it. And so Paul encourages us along, along these ways in the passages that we're going to look at. Ian Bounds said this about prayer. He said prayer is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing in the Christian life. Pray therefore, pray, pray, pray. The topic of our discussion this morning in the realm of prayer is intercessory prayer. And to kind of get into that topic, I want to ask you to turn to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. I want to read for you two portions of Scripture. And they are recordings of prayers from the Apostle Paul. And I think these are recorded for us as, if you will, models of the kinds of prayers that you and I should be praying for others. So follow along beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1. Paul says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And notice, all of these prayers are going outward. Okay, their intercessory prayer for someone else. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. 
the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power to you who believe. That power is like the working of His strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Not only in the present age but also in the age to come. And then He goes on to finish that prayer. Go to chapter 3 then. Pick up with me in verse 14. Ephesians 3 and verse 14. And Paul says this. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom His whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Okay, so here you find two prayers. Paul prays and records them. And you can only guess this, that Paul wants them to know that he's praying for them, but to put them into the context of inspired scripture leaves them for us as permanent models or examples of the kinds of prayers that we should be praying for each other, for our church family, for our children, for those around us. So I want us to look, first of all, at this from the perspective of trying to give a definition to intercessory prayer. So just flip back to chapter one real quick. And from this text, I just want to quick lay out for you a definition of intercessory prayer. And this really runs verses 15 through 17. Okay, I've read it, so I'm not going to go back to the text a lot, but just see if these simple thoughts make sense. A definition of intercessory prayer. It is prayer for or on behalf of others. So Paul's praying for you that your faith would be encouraged. It is prompted by deep affections. Okay, so there are people in the sphere of Paul's influence that he is close to, and as he thinks about them, he is firing up prayers to God. He's exalting prayers to God in light of needs that may be present in their life. So it's prompted by deep affection. Third, it is characterized by persistent asking. Okay, I am remembering you in my prayers. I, verse 17, keep asking. Okay, and if you look at, up the word prayer, just at its most basic and fundamental definition, what is prayer? Prayer is asking. It's going to God with specific needs and asking Him to meet those needs. And so there's this idea of a persistent asking. It reminds us of the parable of the widow who had a serious need, and she just kept knocking on the door. That's the characteristic that Paul is displaying here. And then the last thing you see is that it is related to specific concerns and needs. Okay, so Paul, as he praise for the people in Ephesus, he has in his mind specific needs that are present in their lives. So intercessory prayer is prayer for others that is prompted by deep affection, characterized by a persistent asking, and related to specific needs that are present. All right, that's the essence of intercessory prayer. Now, for moms and dads this morning, and for husbands and wives this morning, here's what I want to encourage you to think about. Okay? You have people in your sphere of influence, every individual within this church family, you have people within your sphere of influence who have needs. 
Okay, and Paul's encouragement to us is what? That we would seek the face of God on behalf of one another in this thing called intercessory prayer. It is us acting as intermediaries, intermediaries between God and our children, between God and our mate, between God and a co-worker, between God and someone in our church family. So it is an intercessory role. It is the role of an advocate, someone that goes to God on behalf of others to seek strength and encouragement. To lift up each other and to pray that the power of God would come in a strong way into our lives. Now, let's go back then to chapter 3. And look at this model for intercessory prayer that Paul gives. Verses 12 through 15 kind of give us, if you will, the introduction to this prayer. Verse 12 says this. It says, in him and through faith in him. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. Okay, so in this approach to God for the needs of others, what characterizes Paul's prayer life? Okay, and he uses two words here. There is freedom and confidence, freedom and assurance that when he brings his needs to God, God is going to respond. Last night I spent a little bit of time with uh, a couple of my, uh, I guess they're my niece's children. Okay, so I guess mom, their great uncle. Okay. And it was, uh, it's fun being with them. They're sweet kids, and they have a good relationship with their parents. And I noticed something. They're rude. Okay, I'm having a conversation with one of their parents, and what do they do? They freely interrupt with absolute confidence that mom and dad will be responsive to our needs. And they don't come, you know, nervous or anxious. They come speaking, declaring, without any concern for whoever is around. Okay, now there's some things about that that I would like to tweak from a parental perspective. Okay? But the model holds. Children go to their parents with boldness and confidence. There's no shame. There's no sense of, Uncle Tim was standing here talking. He's quite a bit older than you. A little respect for age. Okay, there's no, no concern for that whatsoever. Paul says, when I go to God, I go to God with boldness and confidence. And may that, that understanding that we have freedom as believers, to go into the presence of God, to find strength to help us in our time of need. Go like a child to God. Go unashamed. Go boldly. Go with confidence. And watch God work. That's Paul's attitude. And then he also, in verse 14, he talks about this idea of how he comes to God. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Okay, so there's confidence and boldness, but there's no arrogance. And there's a difference. There's a difference between how a child approaches their parent with, that, with complete self-centered thinking, right? But as Paul comes to God, what is he? He's very self-conscious. How do you know that? Because when he goes before God to pray, posture matters. Now, understand this. I understand that you can pray in any setting was reading an email from a friend uh, that sent it out to some of the men in the church recently. He was talking about capturing his commuting time as an opportunity. Something he used to resent has now turned his car into a place where he meets with God, prays for his family, listens to the word. And I thought, that's awesome. All right? So as, as Paul thinks about this, he has a posture. And when you're driving your car, it's hard to get on your knees. Okay? And it may even be illegal. All right? But when Paul comes to God with boldness and confidence, there's also this posture that indicates reverence, awe. 
He's stunned by the privilege and the opportunity. So the prayer is not something he has to do. It's that he gets to do this. Do you see? And so as you go into this, the specifics of the prayer that Paul's going to offer, there is an attitude and there is a, a deep reverence, a sense of need, of, of immediacy, of seriousness. And the seriousness of his need does what? It attracts him into the presence of God. He hears about a specific situation. He goes into the presence of God. He humbles himself in God's presence physically, presence physically and offers up his very specific and detailed request to God. Now, the other word that Paul kind of floats in here is, he says, I kneel before the Father. Now, Paul could have said what? He could have said, I kneel before the Almighty. And that would be true. I kneel before the Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. And that would be true. But the one who is all of those things also is to a believer what? He's our Father. And so when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he attracts them into the presence of God through the channel of intimacy without ever forgetting. It's fascinating in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What has Jesus done? He's captured reverence and intimacy in this powerful picture. And when Paul prays, what does he do? He says, I go to our Father and yours, and I go on my knees. So I am welcome. I go with boldness, confidence, to one who is my heavenly father, but he is also the exalted Lord. And we, we need to make sure that we don't forget that because if we make God simply a papa or a daddy and all we have is intimacy with God, we may reduce our understanding of the power of God. Do you see? And so what is Paul doing? Paul's maintaining a balance, a proper view of God that includes an invitation. Come to me as your father. I've made a way. You're of my household. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 19. This is the assumption that goes around this text. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. I remember one time in my life with my children when they had a need that I was unaware of. And I'm going to say this as neutrally as possible so I don't give away who it is. Even though one's not here, so that eliminates one out of three. Okay. Didn't know they had a, a need. And they, for some reason, in this case, chose not to mention it. And when I found out about the need, financial need, my response was what? What do you think it was? Good, take care of yourself. <laughs> okay. Oh, what was my response? My response, why don't you ask? Okay, because what? As a dad, your natural inclination is what? It's... I want to make sure you're taken care of. And I count it not a burden to take care of you. I count it a privilege. It's an honor to be involved in your life. And so when you go to God in prayer, realize this. God has, has arranged things so that the king of eternity and the king of the universe calls himself your father, designates himself such, and he calls you, come, Come, bring your request. The Son of God taught us, go to Father and ask Him to begin to work in your life. So in this passage of Scripture, there is, there is invitation and there is permission and a personal relationship with God in this context is assumed. These believers 
have come into a personal relationship with God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace through faith. They have this relationship. They're not sinners uncleansed. They're sinners who have been redeemed by the grace of God. And it is then that Paul's saying, go to him, and I go to him for you. And in going, I'm giving you a model so that you know how to relate to him. So that's the model of intercessory prayer. Now, the question that comes up next is this. What are the things that Paul requests? What is it that he keeps asking God for, chapter 1 and verse 19? What is the continued request, the continued need that Paul believes that they have? So as you get into this specific prayer then, you find the content of Paul's prayers. And as you move into this, here's what I want you to understand. I don't think that Paul is giving us a model that is meant to be exhaustive in terms of what we pray for, for our families, for our children, for our mate, for our friends, for our church. I don't think it's meant to be exhaustive. It is in some way representative of the kinds of needs that are present in our lives and of the kinds of things and needs that we should be lifting up to our Heavenly Father. Expecting that as we do it, He will be responsive to those needs. So let's look through the very specific details of this prayer. Verse 16. And, and let me just quick say this as, 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 as an aside here. As Paul goes into this prayer, it's important that you notice in the flow of all of chapter 3. Okay, verse 1, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for your sake, and then he picks up that thought where? In verse 14. Okay? Do you notice it? Verse 1, for this reason, and then he goes off. He just kind of drifts off to another topic. Stays there for 11 or 12 verses, and then in verse 14, he comes back to what he was talking about. So what do you have? You have a departure into the glory of the gospel, into the truth that brings us into this relationship with Christ. Okay? And then he goes back, to prayer with the assumption of that relationship. Okay, so that's the kind of this minor detour that he takes to talk about our relationship with Christ so that he talks about prayer. It makes sense because we have access. So for this reason, verse 14. Now, what is the reason? What is, what is it that is driving Paul into God's presence in prayer for the believers? In verse 13, he gives us, I think, a hint of that. He says, I ask, therefore, that you not be discouraged because of my suffering for you. They are your glory. They are for your benefit. They carry weight for you. And so what is Paul's concern? Paul's concern is that the believers in Ephesus, because of verse 1, he is the prisoner of the Lord of chapter 3. So Paul's in prison. He's heard that they're discouraged about his circumstance. And so what does Paul do? In that circumstance, he records a prayer to God for their benefit. And what does he want them to know? He wants them to know, I am do don't be discouraged by my circumstance. I'm doing fine. I'm able to interact with God here. I have ministry here. And then Paul goes in, verse 14, into this prayer that is given to encourage and to uphold and to support these believers who are wrestling with some degree or level of discouragement because Paul is in prison. And the truth that we find in our Christian life is this, that many things in the Christian life can sap our spiritual strength. 
We can have discouraging circumstances. We can have the routines of life that sometimes can get us down. Physical weaknesses and struggles as we age. Right? And they discourage us and they, they take away our energy and take away our strength. We can have personal failure, unwanted interruptions, responsibilities that aren't completed, unresolved conflicts in our lives. There are many things in your life that can eat away and drain the energy out of your spiritual life. And what does Paul want them to do? Paul wants them to be filled with the strength that God can give. And so when he prays, he prays that they would be strengthened from the inside out. Okay, and what I want you to realize is this. As Paul prays for them, he doesn't pray for release from his circumstances. He prays for them strength in the circumstances so that they would learn what God wants them to learn in that setting in their life. So let's look at this first request that Paul gives. Verse 17, or or 16, I'm sorry. Paul says, I pray that God, out of his glorious riches, and the idea of that is simply out of his abundance, out of all that he is, and out of all that he possesses, which is everything in the known universe and in the parts of the universe that you and I are completely unaware of. Out of his abundance, out of his magnificent riches, that he would strengthen you with power through his spirit In your inner being. Okay, so the first thing that Paul prays for is what? That they would know the power of God in a personal and practical way. Okay, that in whatever whatever it is that's frustrating them about his being in prison and whatever fears are present in light of that, Paul says, I want you to be strengthened by the power of God. I want you to take time to think about how mighty God is. And that puts you into, into, into a task that, that, that's impossible, right? Because you can't measure the greatness of God. Every attribute that God has is beyond comprehension. And that's not by design. It's just who he is. And as Paul prays for them, he says, I want you to know God's power. And I want you to know that by the indwelling spirit, who, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 13, he is the one who has sealed you with a promise. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the one who what? He comes and He gives you assurance. You belong to God. Now, what you need to know is what that God is like. So the Spirit speaks to us and what is He saying? You belong to God. He is your Heavenly Father. Know Him. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes a prayer that says, I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power, through His Spirit, in your inner being. He would strengthen you at the very center of who you are. And when Paul talks about the inner being, he's talking about an inner strengthening of the heart, a buttressing, a supporting of you at the very deepest level of who you are. That you would know God. And that in knowing God, what? Your your view of things would change. And notice how he says it. He would strengthen you out of His riches. This is interesting, because if God has infinite resources, and out of infinite resources, he gives you something, after he's given you something, does he have less than he started with? You understand what I'm asking? So I go to God and say, God, I have this need. God says, okay, I'll meet that need. Now, if I go back to God, is he going to be less inclined to meet my next need because I'm getting tapped out? 
or because he's getting tapped out? No. He gives out of glorious riches. The idea is out of, out of an infinite supply, he gives. And you might think, well, is that very kind of God? It's not really like costing him something, but think about this. When Jesus Christ came and took on flesh, what did he give out of? He gave out of finite resources. So that as his child, he might give to you out of what? Infinite resources. Now Paul's saying, I want you to know God. Which God is it? It's the God who became flesh. And there is no comparable God in any other world religion who took on human form and gave out of finite resources so that I could receive out of what? Out of infinite resources. What I need. When I bought my wife's wedding ring, I gave out of my resources and I gave according to my resources. So if you look at my wife's engagement ring, you'll probably come to the conclusion that things weren't going really well. Okay? I look at the rings you young men buy today, those newly married in our church family, you shame us older men. Okay? But when I gave that to my wife, I gave out of, in the sense of according to my resources. But Philippians 4.19 says what? It says, my God will supply all your needs, how? According to his riches and glory in Christ. Well, when I bought my wife's wedding ring, I did it according to what I had. Did the best I could. When God gives to us, what does he give? He gives according to his resources. And you know what? God has never been shamed. God has never been embarrassed by a request because he couldn't meet the need. You know what Paul wants them to know? He said, hey, church in Ephesus, be confident in God. Don't be discouraged. Why? Because he gives out of his infinite resources. And we sing the chorus. He giveth and giveth and giveth what? Again. And, and when he does that, he, is, he never has less. And something we just need to meditate on that. That he has everything that we need and is able to respond to and to meet our needs in very, very powerful and glorious ways. His resources and attributes are limitless. He has never said, I like that, but I can't afford it. He has never attempted something and found himself unable to do it, frustrated. Coming to a time in my life where I'm finding myself more and more in the physical realm, limited. Different parts of my body are starting to talk to me. All right? There's something going on in my foot called, I think it's plantar fasciitis. Is that right, Brent? Am I saying that correctly? Okay, it's close. I didn't spell it correctly, but... Okay, what's going on? My body's talking to me. What is it saying? You're limited. I'm saying, you know what? I'm going to keep running. I like running. And my body keeps screaming at me in the morning when I wake up saying, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> okay. uh, there are things I want to do that I, I can't do. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the resources. God has never faced a circumstance where he had to back down out of fear, out of intimidation, out of what he couldn't do, out of limited resources. And when Paul prays for the believers, he prays to a God who can do abundantly more than we can ever ask or think. So how do you go to him? That's why Paul comes with boldness and confidence. When you come to God and pray, remember who he is. 
a quote that used to hang in one of the rooms at the office says this, his power and strength are such that none can ever ask too much. Think about that. His power and strength are such that you can never ask too much. Let that thought comfort you. That's what Paul wants them to understand. Where do you learn best about the power of God? Where is your hearing best to learn about God and your eyes best to see God for who he really is? Good times? No. You know when you experience it? You know when you see the power of God? You see it in difficulty. The power of God that sustains. If you go to the end of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul gives us a valuable lesson. Ephesians 6, 19, he says this. He says, pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, my words may, be, words may be given to me so that I may speak fearlessly and make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now, if Paul is saying, pray for me, that at every opportunity, I will boldly and fearlessly fulfill my God-given calling. Ask God to strengthen me for that. And then at the end he says, for which I am in chains. What's missing here? What's missing? Paul, if you're in chains, wouldn't it make sense that you would pray that God would get you out of those chains? And wouldn't it make sense that Paul's request to the, to the church in Ephesus would be, hey, why don't you guys pray that God gets me out of here? That's not how Paul prays. It's like the most obvious need in the situation, but it is not the request that Paul records. The request that he records is, God, strengthen me here. And brothers and sisters in Christ, intercessory prayer, intercede with God for me that God would strengthen me here. Because it's in those circumstances that Paul would see God most clearly. First thing that Paul says is in his prayer is that they would know the power of God, whose strength and power are such that we could never ask too much. Secondly, he asked that God would know, or that they would know God's presence. Now, I think there's a connection here between the end of verse 16 and verse 17. In a sense, I think it's saying somewhat the same thing. Notice the way he says it. That he may strengthen you with power through his spirit, where? In your inner being. In the next verse, what does he say? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what is the difference between Christ indwelling us by the Spirit in our inner being or Christ settling down in our hearts? I think it's in a sense, he's saying somewhat of the same thing, but he's giving us a greater insight into what this inner being strengthening is all about. Okay, and so there's a word picture that's painted here. The word picture is, Paul says, I pray that you'll be strengthened in your inner being so that as a result, Christ may be at home in your heart. And the words here that are used are fascinating. It's not, it's not like what I do when I visit my in-law's house. Okay, we went and visited my in-laws this week. We stayed with them. But we do not what? We don't live with them. Okay, and my mother-in-law's heart when you... You, when you walk in the door, if you're a visitor there, what's the idea? The idea is make yourself at home, right? Well, the truth is, it's not my home. All right, my home is in Washington, New Jersey. 
Okay, what am I doing at my mother-in-law's? I'm visiting for a while. It's a short stay. It's not my abiding place. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, I want you to be so in tune with the power of God, so aware of His presence and power, that Christ settles down in, becomes a permanent resident in your home. And, and it's, it's, it's not the idea that you're becoming converted, but that you're moving forward in this relationship. The Spirit of God, Ephesians 1, is already present. So Paul's saying to people that have the indwelling presence of God, what? I want Christ to be at home in your heart. I want you to know Him at a deeper level, at a more intimate level, in an abiding way that comforts your heart in the midst of your struggles. So sometimes what do we have? We have a casual relationship with Christ. We know Him. And the Spirit of God has at some level taken up residence and sealed us in Him. But we don't know Him in this sense of He abides with us. He's staying here. So it's not just stay for a while. It's Christ wants to be at home in your heart. Which means what? Well, it means I'm going to have to clean house. I'm going to have to get things out of my life that make the presence of Christ uncomfortable. Clean up my act. Purify my heart before Him. So that what? So that my prayers aren't hindered, which indicates what? He may be present, but He is not attentive to our needs because of sins that we're harboring in our hearts. And what happens? Our prayer life begins to fade. Paul's saying this. I want you to know the power of God. But in Christ, I want you to know the presence of God. And why would he say that? And why would he say that I want Christ to, to be at home, to inhabit in a way that affects things? Kind of used this illustration before. When I was at home with my brothers and my mom and my sister, I was attentive. When I was at home with my mother and brothers and sister and dad, I was more attentive. Okay, dad's presence changed my behavior. So that what was expressed from my life was different than what was expressed when he wasn't there. Okay, now what happens in our Christian life? In our Christian life, and I, and I saw this illustration used by, uh, I think it's uh, Ted Tripp. Okay, he used the illustration of a water bottle. Okay, and, and, and the question ultimately is, what is it that's going to transform me by the inner power of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ, that is going to change what happens in my life? But that's the question. Okay? And, and it's the question, I think, in a sense, that Paul's kind of going after here. Okay, if I take a water bottle like this and I hit it, what comes out of the bottle? What came out? Water. Why did water come out of the bottle? Because I hit it? I could have air in there and hit it. Would water come out? You understand the difference? If I hit a bottle that's full of water, what comes out? Water. If I squeeze a bottle that's full of air, what comes out? Air. So if I say, if I hit this bottle and water comes out, and I say to you, why did water come out? The real answer is because water is what's inside. Now what does Paul say? He says, I pray that Christ would be at home in your heart so that when the pressure of life does what? Bangs your life. What happens? Christ comes out. Okay? The water of life comes out. 
So what comes out of your life? What comes out of your heart when, when life jostles you, when the troubles and pressures of life hit you? What comes out? The truth is what comes out is what's on the inside. What is Paul praying? What should we pray for our kids? We should pray that Christ would so inhabit their lives and so fill their lives that when the pressures of life hit them, it's Christ that is expressed. It's Christ that comes out. And Paul's prayer then becomes very powerful, doesn't it? That Christ would settle down in your heart, that he would be so at home that the expressions that we live out in our lives as husbands, as young people, as wives, in our church family, as brothers and sisters, that what would come out when life jostles us is the grace of Christ because he is so at home. We understand then why, for Paul, this becomes a powerful prayer request. Pray that Christ would settle down in your life so that when the pressures of life come, what comes out is the presence of Jesus. And the last thing that Paul prays in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would believe He is there. And I pray, he says, that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love. Who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. What does he want them to do? He wants them to move from where they are in their relationship with Christ, knowing the love of Christ, to a deeper knowing of the love of Christ, to a deeper knowing. So implied all through this text, and the reason for this intercessory prayer is what? It's the ongoing need for progress in our Christian life. I am not what I one day will be. I'm not yet what I should be. Right? I, I, have, I have room for progress, for growth. That's the idea that the Apostle Paul is going after in this text. So we, we pray that our, our family members, that we would know God's love better and that we would be rooted and established in that, that it would be the driving force or characteristic or virtue of our lives because we are tied to it. We are in a personal relationship with it. Verses 18 through 19, Paul says, I want you to comprehend and grasp this multi-dimensional love. It's higher than you can understand. It's lower than you can understand. It's farther to the east and west than you can understand. It's enormous. And what does he want us to do? He wants us to meditate on that love and let that love soak in and begin to change us. There's a place in 2 Corinthians 5, and I believe it's verse 19, where Paul's talking about the love of Christ and its effect on his life. Here's what he says. He says, in the midst of a difficult circumstance, the love of Christ is constraining or compelling me. All right, what does he know? He knows Christ loves him and that knowing of Christ's love is giving him perseverance in difficult circumstances. It, the idea of the word is it binds him to the task. It, it lashes him to it. He can't leave it. Why? Because he loves Christ and he knows the love of Christ. And it is changing him. Now God wants us what? God wants us to meditate on the love of Christ. Paul prays that we would know it, that we would think about it to the point that it finally would profoundly and deeply affect us. The love of God holds and constrains like nothing else. Folks, if the love of Christ doesn't bind you to the task of serving your children and serving your mate, 
If the love of Christ doesn't bind you to serving each other, there is nothing else that will ultimately. Our relationships will be fractured. But when we know the love of Christ, what does it do? It constrains us. It holds us. It gives us a reason. We love because he first loved us. And so Paul offers up these three requests. And then I want you to just real quickly look at verse 20 and 21. Because after Paul prays, he, he kind of finishes out the prayer in an extended fashion. He doesn't simply say, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what does he say? Now to him, the one he's been talking about, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. Now that's powerful stuff. Okay, so what if you're struggling, what do you go to God and ask Him to unleash His power to manifest His presence and to show you His love, to show you His passionate heart for you. And when He does, it will, it will tie you to the task that today you find impossible and difficult. You're saying, I can't do it. Okay, so admit that to God. And say, God, you have to do this. Okay, tap into his power, his resources, pray, ask him to work and move and change. And remember that he, in the midst of all of these things, those struggles, he loves you. That's why Paul, I think, can write from prison and say, you know what, don't pray for me to get out of here. Pray that God will use me here. That's knowing God. He's not doubting, he's not sitting in prison saying, you know what, given the circumstances in my life, it's really hard to know if God loves me. Which is where a lot of us go, isn't it? Right? We get hit by the circumstances and God lets the circumstance stay around for a little while. And we're saying, God, I'd like it if you would take this away. And God says, it'll be better if you stay there with it. Because you're going to know me in a way that you couldn't know me otherwise. Do you know that in your own life? I do. Things are going good. It is so easy to kick it into neutral spiritually. It is so easy to coast and think, okay, things gone pretty well. And God bumps us along the way, what? So that we would remember, He's in charge. His resource, His power, His love, His strength, His presence. And He's kind enough to not let us wander without seeking to get our attention. So what should we pray? I think we should pray something like this for our family. Just take this prayer. Take it and... Insert the name of your children as you would read through this text and offer this up to God. Do it with many of the prayers that are in Scripture. Do it with commands that are in Scripture. Pray the Word of God and let these prayers, these models, that begin to transform your life. Maybe this morning, as we talk about prayer, you're thinking about unresolved issues in your own life. You're thinking what David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, then God won't hear me. Or you're thinking about 1 Peter 3, 7, where Paul says, men, if you don't love your wives, then your prayers will be hindered. They won't be answered. You won't, you won't t- tap into the presence of God in your life. You won't enjoy the presence of Christ in your life. Pray. Pray prayers of confession first. Pray, perhaps today, confess the sin of prayerlessness in our lives, where our prayer lives haven't been what they should be, and say, God, reignite my passion for you. Reignite my desire to know you in the ways that Paul's talking about here. So that I come to you freely, quickly, 
in all circumstances so that I can know you and so that I can love you with all my heart. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?